Dokumentaries is presented by SeatGeek. Last episode, you heard producers Emma and Joe planning a trip to a Brooklyn Nets game. Let's check in with Emma as she buys tickets on the SeatGeek app. I just downloaded SeatGeek, and I'm opening it now on my phone. Okay, so when you click on the game, it comes up with this map. So you see all these dots. Depending on the color, the dots show how good of a deal the seats are. So you see a green dot courtside, it's $1,880, like $1,880. That's a good deal for courtside, apparently, but I wouldn't know that. I've never sat courtside. Let's see, section 114, it's a green dot, so that's a good sign. Score is 67, so it's a decent deal. Oh, and this is cool. Once you click in on this specific section, you can see what the court looks like from that section. Okay, so I chose two tickets. And I'm gonna pay for this. Okay, my tickets. T minus six hours till tip off. SeatGeek is your ticket to live games, even if you can't sit close enough to trip a referee. Hi, I'm Carrie Champion, and this is Dunkumentaries, an ESPN podcast celebrating the dunk and all of its glory. Tomorrow night, 15,000 cheering fans will pack Madison Square Garden in New York City to witness a giant basketball doubleheader. In that cheering crowd, sitting in row C, seat 11, will be a modest 77-year-old man. Those fans won't know that he made possible the game they're watching. But you're going to meet him now. That tape is from an old New York radio show called We the People. The guest is James Naismith. 125 years ago, in 1891, Naismith was a PE instructor at a small college in Springfield, Massachusetts, when a bad snowstorm struck. For days, the students couldn't go outdoors, so they began roughhousing in the halls. We tried everything to keep them quiet. Something had to be done. One day I had an idea. I called the boys to the gym, divided them up into teams of nine, and gave them an old soccer ball. I showed them two peach baskets I'd nailed up at each end of the gym, and I told them the idea was to throw the ball into the opposing team's peach basket. Most sports don't have such a definitive point of origin, but this one does. I blew a whistle, and the first game of basketball began. That day, in 1891, James Naismith invented basketball. And uh, what rules did you have for your new game, Dr. Naismith? Well, I didn't have enough, and that's where I made my big mistake. The boys began tackling, kicking and punching in the clinches. They ended up in a free-for-all in the middle of the gym floor. In the following weeks, Naismith would go on to make more rules for the game, some that are still around today, like the one that says players can't run while holding the ball, they have to dribble it. But there was one thing, not so much a rule, but a design decision he made back in 1891 that continues to define the way the game is played today. He had to decide how high to hang the peach basket. That's Roman Mars. He's the host of the podcast 99% Invisible, and he's gonna help us tell our story today. Naismith chose to hang the peach basket at 10 feet above the court floor. There was a running track that went around the court at that level, but otherwise the decision was pretty random. And just a little higher or a little lower, and everything would be different. 
That arbitrary decision to put the basket at 10 feet caused the game of basketball to take shape around the tallest players. But it happened gradually. In fact, in the beginning, the game was played by shorter, less imposing players. In the very early days of the game, people didn't really have a conception of height having really any importance to the game. That's writer and journalist Andrew Heisel. So a lot of the the high scorers in the very early days were guys who were like six foot tall. It was not until a few decades in that teams started recruiting really tall guys. And and at the time, they were sort of referred to often as goons. Nowadays, if you play a little rough or dirty, you might be called a goon. Back then, big men were sometimes called goons just because they were big. The first so-called goon to have a major impact on the game was a big white dude named George Mikan, who played for the Minneapolis Lakers from 1948 to 1956. He was a six-foot-ten monster who wore big round spectacles when he played. The two giants jump in front of the Laker basket. Notice the comparative size of referee Ekman. Mikan towered over his opponents and broke scoring records with his strength and accuracy. George Mikan forces his way through the center, spins and shoots, and is fouled by Paul Seymour. Watch Mikan get the rebound. Mikan was such a force, the league actually had to change some rules to help offset his advantage. For example, in order to double the size of the three-second zone, they widened the lane from 6 feet to 12 feet. They dubbed it the Mikan Rule. But the rule changes didn't stop George Mikan or other big men from dominating. You started seeing people saying, like, it's too easy to score. Like, they, they were really sort of disgusted. They thought this should be a triumph to get the ball in the hoop, not something that happens a hundred sometimes a game. The ease with which these super tall players could put the ball in the basket was alarming people. The traditionalists didn't like the way the game was going, but they had no idea what was about to hit them. Slam! Pump! It's the Lakers. Do a little showtime here again. The dunk. The first one in an organized game happened in 1936, but dunking didn't really get going in basketball until the 1960s. And man, the traditionalists, they hated the dunk. But not just because it was a new, unconventional way to put the ball in the basket. The dunk became political. The key year is 1966. That's Matt Andrews. I teach American history at UNC Chapel Hill, and I have a particular focus on sport and society. So it was in 1966. In the NCAA championship game, Texas Western, with an all-black starting five, easily defeat Adolph Rupp's all-white University of Kentucky team. This win by Texas Western against Kentucky was a big deal in the college basketball world. Kentucky was one of the last major college teams in the country that still didn't have any black players. The coach of Kentucky was a guy named Adolph Rupp. Many viewed him as a racist. According to the sports correspondent Frank DeFord, who was in the Kentucky locker room that night, the language Rupp used against the Texas Western players sent a chill down his spine. And there was this moment, right at the beginning of the game, where Texas Western's David Latine gets the ball and makes a move toward the hoop. The defender in front of him is Pat Riley. Yes, it's that Pat Riley. Riley's like six foot four, stockly built, and Latine just rises above and slams the ball into the net. Texas's victory and Latine's dunk were seen as direct challenges to the establishment. After all, this was 1966. There was a lot going on in America. 
The Black Panthers had become a visible force, and many white Americans were worried a revolution was about to take place. In Oakland, the Panthers had armed and organized themselves to protect their communities from brutal racist police. Black power was this new evocative phrase. So that the failure to pass a civil rights bill isn't because of black power, isn't because of the student nonviolent coordinating committee. What's so interesting about this phrase is its lack of specificity. No one is exactly sure what black power means. Into this context comes the dunk, and the dunk seems to be black power manifest on the basketball court. The dunk is physical. The dunk is forceful. You know, when you lay the ball in, you're laying the ball in. But when you dunk, you're doing it to someone. And at a time when so many white Americans are uneasy with the specter of black violence, the dunk becomes suspect. Then to scare people like Adolf Rupp even more comes a player called Lou Alcindor. You likely know him better by the name Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But in 1967, he was a young man, seven feet, two inches tall, and already tearing up the college game with his vicious dunks and fast movement. Al Cinder, surrounded by white shirts. Unstoppable. So the NCAA made a decision. The only way to stop this guy was to get rid of the thing he did best, the slam dunk. In 1967, they banned the dunk. And for 10 years... There's no dunking in college basketball. Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, was not happy about this. In fact, he explicitly said that the only reason for the ban was because they were scared that black guys like him were going to take over the game. Although he used much stronger words. Regardless, the slam dunk was done, and college basketball was sent back in time for 10 years. Basketball was in a bad place. The NCAA administrators had made an arguably racist decision to ban the slam dunk. Meanwhile, in the NBA, players could still dunk, but fans were losing interest. Here's Andrew Heisel again. This is, for the NBA, considered like the low point of the league. There are all of these pieces written about how the game is dying and nobody wants to watch it. And there's all these questions about why. Naismith's original accidental design decision to put the basket at 10 feet had inadvertently given us this beautiful and exciting slam dunk, but it had also caused the professional game to revolve too much around these super tall players. The game had gotten jammed up around the net. People weren't passing as much. They'd just hand the ball to the giant guy and he'd stand under the basket trying to put it in. This had the effect of slowing down the play and that slowness was draining the game of its excitement. Basketball needed a design solution. People suggested a lot of fixes. No backboard, a convex backboard, a smaller basket, a bigger ball, a smaller ball, a no-scoring zone around the basket, and even a height cap. Another group of coaches called for the hoop to be raised to 12 feet. None of those changes caught on. And then this guy comes along. Well, we feel that uh, those people who are not uh, under contractual obligation, if they'd like to take a look at us, we would... So remember George Mikan, the original NBA goon, six foot, ten inches tall with big round specs? Well, in 1967, he was working as a travel agent in Minnesota where he used to play when he gets a call from a couple of guys asking if he wants to head up a new professional basketball league that would compete with the NBA. What do his old NBA friends have to say about his new job? Good luck, baby. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, it really was just sort of making it up as you go along. It was simply, let's get an idea and let's see what we can do here. That's Terry Pluto, who wrote a book about the founding of this new league. They called it the ABA, the American Basketball Association. And no one thought they'd succeed. But George Mikan became the first commissioner, and the league he put together was totally gimmicky. They were trying everything to get fans reengaged in the game. Sometimes they featured cow milking contests for entertainment, and one halftime show in Indiana involved a wrestling bear called Victor. Big, beautiful brown bear who looks to me that he weighs at least 500 pounds. Most of their ideas didn't stick. A lot of times good ideas are like that. They're one of 12 things that people stuck to the wall, and, and out of the 12, one became really good, one helped a little bit, and the other 10 were almost embarrassing. In this case, one of the ideas was really good. In fact, it's the design solution that arguably saved basketball and the secret star of this story that we're telling right now. The three-point shot. And firing for three. Hits a three. Bird is in. And he hits a three. He's one. Knocks down. Double clutches and knocks it down for three. It's good again. The ABA borrowed the three-pointer from an earlier defunct league. Drawing the new three-point line on the court was just another attempt to please the fans. Fans get excited when they see a three-pointer, but then they can also go home and practice the shot. It's more egalitarian. That's Ramona Shelburne, senior writer for ESPN.com. It's the sense that if I practice hard enough, I don't have to be the most athletic guy in the court. I don't have to be an incredible dunker. It's, it's something that when fans watch it, they think, oh, I could do that too. In 1976, the NBA merged with the ABA, and three years later, they brought in the three-point shot. At first, it was about pleasing the fans, and you'd see just a few attempts per game. But over the last four decades, teams slowly came to realize. When you'd study it, if you shoot 35% on three-pointers, and you shoot 45% on two-pointers, if you just break it down... It makes so much more sense to build a team around three-point shooting because you're going to score more points, and that's the point of the game. And now, some teams have decided that the way to win is to concentrate on three-point shots. Of course, no team demonstrates this shift quite like the Golden State Warriors and Mr. Steph Curry. Curry for the lead! Curry splits the defense behind the back, fires a three! I think every kid growing up in America now is trying to be Steph Curry. He is skinny and doesn't seem to have anything physically dominant about him. And yet, when you watch him play, he's electric. So electric that this season, he's made more than half as many three-pointers as Larry Bird did in his entire career. The style of play that Curry has perfected has spread the court out in ways few could have imagined 40 years ago. Offensive players shoot from further out, and defenders have to follow them there. It opens up the whole game. The game has changed for the better. There's no doubt about it. That's former Indiana Pacer and original ABA player Jerry Harkness. Because the game is exciting. The game is run and shoot. Quickness, defense, opening the game up, making it more aggressive. But even though the three-point shot has had a balancing influence, some traditionalists still don't like it. I don't think it's basketball. You know, I think it's like a kind of like a circus sort of thing. You know, why don't we have a five-point shot? 
and a seven-point shot. You know, where does it stop? You know, that sort of thing. But that's just me. That's just old school. That's San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich. Popovich isn't alone in this sentiment. Steph Curry, the Warriors, their rise and continued dominance has sparked a new debate about the three-point shot and its role in the game today. Should the three-point line be moved back? Should we allow home teams to decide where the three-point line is drawn? Should there be a three-point shot at all? It all sounds a lot like the debate over the slam dunk 50 years ago. But even the most ardent critics of the three-pointer recognize its importance in the modern game. To a certain degree, you better embrace it, you're going to lose. And every time we've won a championship, three-point shot was a big part of it. Instead of designing the beautiful, powerful dunk out of the game, we designed a counterbalance, the three-point shot. The three-pointer and the dunk have become the yin and yang of basketball. All of this has sort of been by accident. The 10-foot-tall basket, the dunk, the three-point shot. But then again, the game wasn't carefully designed in the first place. Really, it came about because all James Naismith wanted was to stop some rowdy kids from getting into too much trouble. And the whole thing started with a couple of peach baskets I put up in a little gym 48 years ago. I guess it just goes to show what you can do if you have to. This installment of Dunkumentaries was a collaboration with our friends at the podcast 99% Invisible, specifically Roman Mars, who co-hosted this episode, and Katie Mingle, who edited it. If you've never heard about their show before, they did a great prequel to this story that's all about the shot clock called Game Changer. You can check that out at 99pi.org. From the ESPN side, Joe Sykes reported and produced this story with help from Ryan Nantel, Emma Morgenstern, Delina Turman, and Josh Macri. Dave Smith mixed it. Additional production support from David Jacoby and Kevin Wilds. With special thanks to Jody Avergan for hooking us up with 99% Invisible. Zach Lowe for providing invaluable background information. And the NBA for letting us use their audio. You should check out Andrew Heisel's article on Vice called The Plot to Kill the Slam Dunk, which inspired the idea for this story. Check out the other four episodes of Dunkumentaries available in the Listen tab of the ESPN app, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at ESPN.com, Dunkumentaries, or on Twitter at Dunkumentaries. I'm Carrie Champion, and thank you for listening. And on the next episode of Dunkumentaries... Hi, I'm Kate Fagan. I'm hosting an episode of Dunkumentaries about the first woman to dunk, all the way back in 1984. In the wake of Title IX, this milestone moment showed other women that anything was possible. Only problem? The coach of the opposing team wouldn't give up the videotape. I offered him everything from money to fame, and he said no. Hear how that story unfolds on Dunkumentaries, 